0: Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast. My name is Jonathan, and this is episode 15, The Steady March. So, in 43 AD, Rome invaded Britain, and in a piece of theatre, which is interesting, to say the least, uh, as the Roman army moved into Britain, uh, as they reached the Thames, and according to Dio, Plautius decided that it was too difficult to continue forward. Uh, He ended up calling Claudius over for the main meat of the battle. Now, of course, that's one argument. The other argument that was presented by Suetonius is that the battles were already over. Suetonius claims that there was no battles that Claudius was involved in. Yet, Dio brings us an idea that somehow he was at the final defeat of the British kings. So my theory is at this point is likely what's happened, and I'm sure it's a theory fairly well held, is that what we had was a mass surrender, which Claudius was there to witness and take the surrender so that he could claim victory, uh, which is always interesting because we don't know enough to know who is right. But because Suetonius had access to ...imperial records because Suetonius is much closer in date than Dio in writing. We just assume that probably Suetonius is closer to correct. Now, mind you, Suetonius loved to talk about the more uh, rumor-filled ideas of what the emperors did or said. Uh, In fact, when Claudius dies, uh, Suetonius brings up a rumor that he was poisoned... ...and then starts to make educated guesses as to who might be involved so it's completely speculation but yet it's acted and written as if it's almost fact so whenever you run into these problems you you're kind of stuck because you don't know who to believe or, or what to do so we just have to take more or less their word for it and kind of compare and contrast to others now with all that said unfortunately we don't have tacitus's version of this which is part of the problem if we had the section that's missing out of Tacitus's annals, we might actually know better, because Tacitus, being slightly closer than Suetonius, he might have more specific information, and we never know what went missing and when, and when, like, say, Claudius Dio may have had copies of these items and been able to look at them where we didn't. So, or we don't, I should say. But interestingly, one of the things that is brought up, which I thought was very curious, is when... Claudius returns to Rome and after he has his, uh, as it's called, a large triumph, Suetonius brings up the fact that the triumph is huge and that it goes on for quite a while. He also points out that one of the things that Claudius received for his achievement of defeating the British was his crown uh, of Neptune or his naval crown. And this was to be received as Basically, him conquering the ocean or Oceanus, which I think is an interesting little little side note, is that he receives this crown for defeating the ocean. Um, so crossing the ocean was a, a, seen as a military achievement because, obviously, to the Romans, the ocean was a scary thing. So anytime you could defeat Neptune, you got to make an issue of it. Apparently, so they would also create. Uh, I think the other little oddity here that I think is fun to mention is that this victory was seen as so important that Claudius, uh, who is well known to love, according to these authors, the, the idea of having gladiatorial combats and various celebrations. So one of the things he would do during his life is actually, on the fields of Mars, have reenactments where the They would show the defeat of the British kings. And I'm sure the public must have loved that kind of thing. You know, it's an entertainment thing. The Romans were uh, well known for doing these kind of things. They used to do historical reenactments of various battles. In fact, in the Flavian Amphitheater, better known to us today as the Colosseum, they will actually hold naval battles inside of it, which I'm still to this day amazed at the ability to actually flood the Colosseum and have boats going around. And having battles in this colosseum, And it just, that's just such a feat of infrastructure that it's just, I, I don't know how they went and did it. But nonetheless, the fact remains is that they're fascinated with these kind of things. And they love to do these sort of things. To be honest, not dissimilar to a lot of people today, who like to do civil war reenactments, both in the UK and the US of different civil wars, needless to say, uh, or people who like to dress up in medieval garb and and do reenactments of various battles, or even just ways of life, to some extent. So there is that fascination with the past, and a fascination with victories, and and a way of celebrating things. So the Romans loved this kind of stuff. So the fact that they would actually go to the bother of doing this, even within what would to them be you know mem- memory, um, is an interesting idea, and I, it it shows you both, I think, the ability of them to do these kind of things, how fascinating it is, and two, how much drama was seen in these kind of reenactments and how important it was to the Romans to do these kind of things. And they would actually bring in gladiators to run these roles and fight these battles. And sometimes the gladiators weren't terribly excited, needless to say, to fight these things. One of the other things that's brought up at this point as well is that at this stage we start to get British gladiators into the Roman Areas, So in other words, as they're capturing warriors that fought against them and taking them back to Rome, they end up fighting for the Roman pleasure, which I'm sure they weren't terribly pleased with or happy about. But it was one of the few legitimate ways that you could get free is to continue to be a winner in the gladiatorial combat field. So there were ways of of getting out of it eventually, but, you know, they were neither easy nor straightforward And of course, your life expectancy as a gladiator wasn't high. Meanwhile, back in Britain, uh, as Claudius goes home, has his celebrations, has his big old reenactment ceremonies, gets, you know, lauded for all his achievements, uh, his wife is murdered, he gets a new wife who just happens to be his niece. Back in Britain, there's still a war to be fought, and Claudius is now currently having his commanders move out of the southeast of England and start to move towards the west. As he does this, he runs into a lot more military resistance. How do we know this? Because some of the records talk about the fact that uh, Vespasian, who's actually fighting in Britain at the time, future Emperor Galba, also was fighting in that area. He was headed more towards the Midlands and probably was one of the first to come up against the Welsh tribes at that point. He would expand the borders along with his fellow uh, legionary leaders. Um, Vespasian actually comes up against resistance to the point where his son uh, Titus is afraid for him and has to actually go in and relieve him because as he's moving down the coast, taking areas like the Isle of Wight and moving closer and closer to Cornwall, he runs into some resistance and fairly heavy resistance. And in fact, the Romans will take quite a while even to capture all of that area, like Devon and Gloucester and Cornwall. will all fall, but it will take a little bit to do. In fact, this whole period takes about four years. And at this point, they get to kind of the first border of Brit- of Roman Britain, which is effectively from Exeter, north to Lincoln. And they actually set up what is called the Foss Way, which is one of the first Roman roads Now, this Roman road, as I've said before, the Roman roads are built for military purposes. Initially, uh, they're meant to be able to move troops quickly to all sides of their frontier. Um, So that's one of the main things that they do at that point is they try and set up this to create an easy way to ship troops about. And they will actually start to move forward eventually out of there. But initially, that's kind of where we begin. By the end of uh, 47, the Romans had in control the tribes of the Truvantes, Caterellamni, and the Canticae. These were the tribes that were actually initially possibly allies or possibly conquered, more likely to be the conquered ones. While they set up client kingdoms with the Iceni and the Atrebates. Atrebates were the old ally that they'd had probably from the beginning and likely were part of the reason why they came to Roman Britain in the first place, and I suspect they were the main trading tribe with the Romans at the time. And then also they added the Brigantes at some point, and their rather famous leader and woman leader, one of the few female leaders we hear about, who is Cardamandua. And Cardamandua is one of these people who is well-known in part because she is a very, very clever political leader. She is very good at playing every side to her advantage. She wanted the Romans as her ally. She maintained that alliance until she herself passed away, uh, but had to fight against everyone else in the process. She becomes key to the Romans settling the rest of Britain, because with their north kind of protected, they were able to mitigate a lot of the other stuff because if the Brigantes were one of the biggest tribes in Roman in what was then the Iron Age Britain and they kinda ran anything from effectively from Leeds north into southern Scotland. And because of that, they had a lot of influence over the other tribes. They had a larger force to be able to stop problems. And Cardamandua ruled with a relatively iron fist and she was quite clearly in charge of her tribe. And she also, she played real politic quite well, you know, where where it benefited her. She made sure she got rid of people who were in her way, be they husbands, be they other kings, be they the, you know, the, the nobles who had crossed her. So this is a woman who was well known, who was quite clever and had made such an impact that. Even the Romans themselves write about her quite extensively. She will be one of two British women who become huge to the story of the first century in Roman Britain. The other we will come in contact with later, known as Boudicca, who will become... The leader of a rebellion against the Romans, but at this stage, Cardamandua is the key figure because she's the key ally who helps mitigate a lot of the troubles that Britain or that the Romans might have had in Northern Britain, and uses the Brigantes to basically bring the rest of the the North under control, and probably expanded her kingdom in the process. And you know, because that's what kings do; they don't, and queens, they don't allow. You know, if if they're looking at ways of ed- taking advantage of the Romans. One of the ways to do that is to take advantage by taking territory that they want. And likely that's probably what they did is they settled old scores against other tribes to make sure that they got the territory that they wanted. Now, another person who is key in this early stage, another early Briton, um, is a man by the name, of uh, Coggedubnes or possibly Toggedubnes, but we believe it's Coggedubnes, uh, who was a key cog in the invasion plan. There's a lot of ideas that historians can inflict on this particular subject. There is not a actual, this is who he was, and that's what he, where he came from. We know who he was, but where he came from is always the biggest question with him. And there's three options, basically, as to who he might have been. One, he could have been a British client king of the Romans. Two, he could have been a noble Or three, he could have been an exile in Gaul, put on the throne by the Romans of the uh, tribe of the Regni, or the Regnius. And this client kingdom, which isn't mentioned a lot, but yet this guy is important enough that there is some speculation that he may have been an heir to uh, Varica, who was the king who fled to the Romans when he was dethroned. Uh, to complain to Claudius to try and get them to invade Britain in the first place. So, there is some speculation that maybe that's why this guy's so important. And so, effectively, what he becomes is he's key to their invasion plans and probably was key to understanding various tribes, doing negotiations, speaking the same language, and important enough that he's mentioned in all the books. at factormeals.com slash welsh history pod 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History
1: is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On conflicted,
0: At the time, in fact, Tacitus mentions that he lived long enough that he was still alive when he was writing uh, in the 70s, AD. As well, we find a marble inscription from the 1st century, which includes a mention of him as the patron of the Temple of Neptune and Minerva. So this is a guy who was very much a Romanized king. In fact, his first two patronyms are Tiberius Claudius, so... (laughs) He was given a Roman name and obviously under the king, either under Claudius or possibly under Nero. And so this is a Romanized client king who sets up in the area of Chichester and, in fact, takes some of the territory away from the Atribones. And he is big enough, like I said, that we find inscriptions of him even to this day in the record as well as the writings. So we know he existed. We also know, even though there's some disagreement about how you spell his name, we do know that he was important enough that he goes beyond that point and and actually lives quite a long life. So the other interesting side of him is, is that the palace in Chichester near Fishguard is actually a Roman villa. So he was Romanized enough that he had one of the first Roman villas in the area, which I think is also very fascinating when you kind of see those kind of things. Um... As the areas of the southeast became Romanized, as they started to sort of settle down and become peaceful areas, uh, basically from about 47 AD onward, uh, they Romans start to then look at settling and trying to set up, as they do in every other point when they actually dominate a landscape, they will then put in colonies. And we've talked about this before. The Colonia is basically a settlement for ex-Roman soldiers. It's put in place to do three things. One, giving the soldiers land so that they have somewhere to go whenever their term ends. This gets them out of Rome so we don't overcrowd Rome. And two, it also gives them land so that they actually have a reason to fight because at the end of the day, that's what they're going to get. They're going to get some prime land, and that's always a big part of As the Romans give themselves the best pieces of things. That will become a bit of an issue. Finally, and I think also key is it gives them a level of soldiers who, while may not be your frontline troops anymore, are still well-trained and have fought over years and years, so they can act like a a ready-born militia if you need them to. So they have all of these purposes in mind, and they help to control the area. Now, they might have had local wives. We don't really know, necessarily. They may have... Because, like, I mean if you're a long-term Roman soldier, you fought in the army for 25 years, likelihood is, and I am, and this is speculation on my part, is you're not necessarily going to have wives and kids living back in Italy because that's a long way to go when you're fighting on the borders of Germany or on the borders of places like Britain. And so likely these men will settle and where they fought, they may have gained wives there. It, through booty, through slavery, through rape, through all sorts of different things. They may have families and, and, like I said, wives already. So this group then moves into the area and they settle there and become a fixture in the landscape. And they create Romanized cities, civitas as they're called. And these Romanization bring in some of the early infrastructure that we see, like the... Specific town that we're going to mention is one of the the early capitals of Roman Britain, and it's called. Uh, it was called in Roman times. It was called either Camelum, Camelodundum, or it was called the Colonia Victrix, which basically refers to a place which we now know today as Colchester. And Colchester, of course, originates from the idea of possibly of a colony, Colchester. Location is such that it's in one of the nicest farmland areas. They kind of create friction by taking it out over some of the nicer growing areas in Southeast Britain to do this. And this will create problems with the tribes that they've already dominated. This is part of the problem that the the British and Romans have right from the get-go for the next century, basically, is is the Romans do things like Romans do things. They don't do things like the locals do. And so if that doesn't work for them, they don't change. They continue to do that. And so you end up having this problem of eventually either the Romans go in and try and wipe you out, you go in and try and wipe them out, or conversely, eventually, just by mere domination, you become Romanized. And and in Britain, we kind of get all three. We get the Romans basically trying to wipe out certain tribes to make sure that they don't become a problem again. Uh, We have the tribes themselves trying to wipe out the Romans, and we're going to talk about this with Boudicca specifically, but there's others who try it as well. And conversely, we end up with the Romanization of Britain, for the most part at that point later on, as the Roman fact dominates the landscape and dominates most of what we know as Britain, including all of England, most of Wales, and even a small portion of Scotland. Now... As the Roman borders uh, start to get firmed up, the later Roman governor after Palladius decides that he needs to stop the revolts and rebellions and, and resistance, which is coming up to the west of the Romans at this point. At this stage, they still have a military boundary that was based on the Foss Way. And in 47, they start to move inland and start to head towards Wales. And at that point, they get into a huge confrontation with Welsh tribes and with some of the northern tribes who then start to work together. And in fact, the Brigantes will get involved in this. And again, this goes back to Cardamandua being clever and sort of uh, able to play both sides. And we'll see later that she great creates alliances with certain tribes to fight against the Romans. And then next thing you know, she's on the other side with the Romans. Uh, in the meantime, one of the real thorns in the sides of the Romans at that point, the real reason why the resistance remain remained so strong, is a guy by the name of Caratacus, who is a leader of one of the British tribes that was defeated early on. In fact, he is one of the ones that that is supposed to have submitted to Claudius. But apparently, well, he wasn't really fond of that whole thing and spent the rest of his life after that, resisting the Romans and he would actually go into Wales and in the area of Wales would stir up the tribes to fight against them. And one of the tribes he stirs up is the Silures, who become a huge problem for the Romans. The Silures are, are will become legendary in the way they resist the Romans to the point where the Romans will then send a legion in to settle them down. And his Resistance is key, as I said, to what happens later. And and in fact, he becomes sort of the center of British unity and is almost like the high king fighting against the Romans. So the Romans know they have problems and he is a key problem that they have to deal with. Uh, And like I said, that will then develop into the wars in Wales in the next 20 years, which then lead to the eventual revolt by Boudicca. And then we finally get to a stage where things will settle down and we can talk about Roman Wales and actually discuss some of the areas of Wales and how they Romanized, what was there. And you can start to contrast and compare the difference between a Romanized Wales, which is based off of uh, accommodation, and a Romanized Wales, which is based off of military intervention, because those things will still exist all the way through to the 400s, there will still be a military boundary uh, in Wales because of the problems that they have dealing with the, the mountain tribes and trying to stop them from causing the Romans trouble. But we'll get more to that as we go. Uh, we'll For now, we'll say goodbye for this week and I hope to talk to you later. Take care, have a good day, and like I've said before, please check us out and give us a rating and review on iTunes, on Stitcher, and uh If you can on Google Play, those things are really key to how we grow. I want to thank everybody who who listens to the podcast and as well, if you have any comments or questions or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you later.
1: Bye bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation.